Matt and Hillary, and I'm Matt. <laughs> and I'm Hillary. So we're, we were just talking, this is our Kim Stanley Robinson read-along podcast, and I think we were just talking, there was an election last week. Uh-huh. What? <laughs> Hillary, we were just talking about this, and I said we should start recording this because, and the reason I said that was because it was good stuff that we were saying yeah. about the despair that we both feel. <laughs> But that also, like, like I think I felt like our conversation mm-hmm. really um, resonates well with the chunk of chapters yeah, that we're going to yeah, read today, too. Yeah. And, and the whole project of this book, which is a project of, like, hopeful, like a, uto- like a, a kind of weird utopianism. Like, it, in one of his, in, in a few interviews he's talked about, in an essay, he's talked about uh, anti-anti-utopianism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not going to be, you know, whatever. It's not going to be a perfect society, but it's going to be not the thing, not the not not the unthing that we don't want it to be, or whatever. Right, right. And um, these this chunk of chapters from like fifty to fifty one to sixty, hopefully we'll get through. Have a lot of like really like um, examples of on the ground activism. Okay. Uh, Mary like mm-hmm. working with central banks, uh, scientists drilling holes in glaciers to pump the water out. Yeah, all these kinds of things, and then like you know. Uh, violent direct action, uh, really interesting scenes there. Um, and they offer like ways of like, like, like hopeful things that could happen that could be done uh, in the future to, um, you know, radically address the just existential crises, the, inter- the, the, the web of interlocking existential crises that we face. And we were just saying that neither the Biden nor the Trump campaigns offered any of that at all, like no concrete visions for anything like re- approaching that. Yeah. And yet there was record turnout and everyone was, seemed really, I don't know if excited to vote would be the right word, obligated to come out and vote. I think the excitement was probably more on the Republican side than the Democratic side, mm-hmm. based on like the the dour lines of uh, of, of voters that you'd see in the weeks <laughs> leading up to it, and then of course the ebullient like Trump rallies, just people like really really excited to like root on this this yeah. mush brained uh, <laughs> dipshit, um, and of course like really. <laughs> concerning to me just really like off-putting was you know there are a significant number of millions of people in this country who believe that donald trump is literally the messiah (laughs) and there is nobody who believes that biden is that and that's both you know that's good but it's also kind of concerning because there's no passion like that on the op on the quote-unquote opposite side for any galvanizing figure and that's alarming. Yeah. I mean, I think that the kind of, um, I was thinking right before we started recording, we were talking about, um, you know, people celebrating, I think, which probably partly we were talking about because neither one of us felt like celebrating 
or that there's anything to celebrate, but Matt, you were saying like, oh, um, you know, it's good that there is still this possibility of people being out in the street and, and experiencing joy together. Um, and I, and it made me think about how in a bunch of the, um, uh, in a bunch of the protests in Chicago this summer, like around, um, uh, police violence and defunding the police, um, there was a real emphasis on the part of um, some of the younger activists on these scenes as also like including joy, you know, and this kind of conversation around black joy and why, um, you know, the expressions of joy on the part of black people are immediately coded as, you know, as threat, as disruption, as trivial, as all these other things. And so like one of the things that like, um, you know, a lot of the like, I'll just say kids who are out protesting um, were doing, um, and, I mean, and not only black kids, but like, yes, mostly like people of color um, was like dancing and being like really explicitly celebratory together um, you know, taking up this idea that like part of what they wanted to do was both to sort of make a point and make a demonstration, but also to like be together, right? And take a kind of pleasure in being together um, and that there's something really powerful in being together. And I, I was just thinking about that, like, cause I, I think that that is really important, you know, and there are a couple of places in, there are a couple of different places in ministry, which I think thinks actually, you know, quite a bit about um, not just direct action, but also about just like, what does it mean to be out in the streets? There are a couple of places where we get the idea that like a lot of stuff that goes on out in the streets is just like, it's a party and then no one commits to anything. Um, and I, you know, I'm a little like skeptical of that line because I actually am not certain that that's true. I mean, I get what that critique kind of is, but I, I'm like less sure that that's true. Um, but, you know, I, I really felt, like, disheartened by the sense that, um, you know, it was great that people were out in the streets celebrating, not, I, th I agree with you, not so much Biden winning as, you know, Trump being on his way out, right? That that was, like, you know, this potentially, you know, like, great, joyful expression of people being together, fine, but but like that was not that has not been a thing that people have been able to say or see in like all of the times in the past like four months or whatever it's been that people have been out on the streets in protest, which I think has also had joy to it and the power of people saying like we're going to be out here together like you know despite the pepper spray and just and despite like despite the pandemic right that it's worth it to be out here and. It, and, you know, like that, I worry so much about the way in which, so I don't think like that for the like young, younger activists in Chicago or older activists here or across the country, you know, they're going to keep fighting because like these are people who are going to keep fighting. But I think like this, you know, we do see that like if there was some possibility of a sense that like these kinds of demands and this linking of, um, to get the linking together of the injustice that that sort of like COVID has like made highly apparent with the forms of injustice that like the police shootings of black people make highly apparent. Like if there was some sense that that, you know, might get some like hegemonic purchase, right? 
I feel like that is fucking gone because people are just going to be going to be like, let's go back to normal. And none of these bad things were there before. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, the, the celebration, you know, it's just very similar to me to my experience of the 2008 election where the real feeling was, thank God George W. Bush isn't president anymore more so than Obama is president now. Yay. Um, that was my kind of, I mean, I know that a lot of people were very excited about president, about Obama becoming the president. Um, but I, I feel like so much of it was just, uh, uh, for, for that Bush was gone and similar now Trump is gone. And there, so that's a, cel- a celebration of negation, mm-hmm. like a negative, mm-hmm. a negative celebration, mm-hmm. like there, that something uh, that there's a lack of something rather than a positive presence of something. Um, it reminds me of like the end of all, like the end of Return of the Jedi or the end of any of these big epic movies where they defeat the empire. I mean, Zizek talks about this too, is like the, the, these, these movies about revolution always end with the, the, the deposing of the tyrannical regime. You don't ever see the day after the next right. day right. when they build the thing. You know, what was all this for? No, it was always against something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Biden allowed the Biden campaign and Biden himself as a cipher. Uh, you know, he, he successfully, you know, despite his extraordinarily long and reactionary record. Yeah, really? <laughs> um, he successfully replicated mm. the cipher, uh, the quality of being a cipher that, uh, that Obama had. Um, so that you could if not project anything onto him, at least overlook anything because of this quote unquote existential threat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, like now that the kind of idea, like the kind of uh, lists of who is going to populate the Biden uh, administration or sort of being leaked, (laughs) you're like, oh fuck, that's what, I think that's one of the things that made me really depressed this morning is reading that. It's just like, you know, part of the benefit one of the positive things that Trump brought was a sense of chaos and a bunch of <laughs> morons who didn't know what they were doing. And also that Trump was such a despicable and disgusting figure that people had, you know, were repulsed by him. And then that could like be used as a kind of lens to focus in on the heinous things that he was, that, not he, because he didn't do anything. That the 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 blob, the 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 administration, the people who, the people who people these administrations every time, the policies that they enact. Yeah. And when you see b- the list of Biden people, they're the same people. They're they're not the same people as the Trump regime, but they're the same people as uh, as who worked for Obama. They're the same people who come from the same schools, who have the same culture, who have the same ideas, who work for the same corporations and then come back to work for the government and then go back to work for (laughs) corporations. And they're all just these um, soulless, you know, they're, they're the, they're the guys from they live They're They are the kind of (laughs) ghouls from they live. And you're like, great. Now we have competent governance. Now we can, you know, get back on with the project of U.S. empire and capitalist hegemony that's going to destroy the biosphere. And there's very little 
that I can see, like, it's just, you know, just, the only good thing will be, the only good things will be um, cosmetic, not even aesthetic, cosmetic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, until 2024, when the Democrats, because they are refusing to learn their lesson in the new, like as headlines are unfolding right now, as like AOC and Rashida Tlaib are like telling the moderates, like, you guys are awful. You suck. <laughs> you we can't, we can't reconcile, like we can't reconcile with our political enemies. Um, so either they are our political enemies or they're not the Republicans. And obviously they're not for a great deal of the Democratic, great percentage of the Democratic Party. So the 2024 is just looks like, and 2022, they're both just going to be like awful, awful, awful washouts. Yeah. And particularly the case, because the next two years are just, if the, if they can't win those two seats in Georgia, which clearly they're not going to with John Ossoff, the most hideous, he's like a lizard man. He's like he's a, a re real lizard man. Yes. Yeah, he's like a, they live ghoul, but like with no, none of the, like the hologram that creates the illusion of a human is malfunctioning uh, yeah, on his, yeah. on his belt or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, that guy, I can, I just like, wow. Yeah. Um, oh, it's mystifying. It's mystifying. So there's just going to be gridlock and, and, it's just going to be incredibly uh, clownish. I mean, I don't know. There's a benefit to the American empire crumbling, which is that other countries could actually like exert some kind of like influence over their own, like reassert influence over their own spheres. And also we need to, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get through this, when we start finally talking about the book is that, um, I just have a real, it's making me really read this book differently. The kind of like, um, how liberal democracy is unfolding in front of our eyes right now versus the way like Chinese, whatever you want to call it is working right now, mm. especially in relation to COVID mm -hmm. where we have more cases per day than China has had total. Yeah. Um, so, like, yeah. which system is doing a better job at, like, providing for the general welfare of its citizens would be the big question. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, I, something I think is that's really interesting about, um, that's really interesting about, about Ministry for the Future that I, I think is, like, a very, um, seems to me like a kind of telling thing to think about, um, is that really like the political like as a domain or a realm or whatever is quite absent from it you know um and it's constantly revolving these kinds of questions around like um you know i mean and the whole status of the of itself the ministry for the future i mean in some ways like it is a little bit of a um it's like a little hard to know how exactly to describe what kind of actor or what kind of like uh, what its role is, right? And part of how it's really constituted is just like um, uh, through all of these kind of more or less like dialectical relations or like moments of like positing a kind of question about where change happens or what agency might be in a particular situation, some of which come through specifically through Mary um, and some of which come through like these questions that are about like, um, you know, uh, rule of law versus like the necessity of acting outside the law. Um, but, you know, it, it, 
the kind of, um, I mean, to me, this election is so much just like, it's just like an illustration of this, you know, um, a really kind of amazing political emptiness. I mean, yeah. you know, um, that, that in, in the moment, in, in a moment in which it is so clear, I mean, and this points to like what you're saying about, about China, right? Like it's very clear if we just take COVID and, and, uh, you know, really just as like, um, uh, as the virus, right? And, and the necessary, what would be necessary to stop it, as well as what would be necessary to simply take care of people through this period. Um, well, there it is actually quite clear that it makes sense to appeal to the state, right? Um, you know, even, even, even if that might not be your, um, idea of like the path to like making the world better like that's not my idea of how to make the world better but but in this particular instance like there are actually all kinds of things that the state can do and of course we should already know that it wasn't going to do them right we could have known that based on like the extraordinary like you know um, morass of gestures that is the affordable care act and we could certainly have known that based on um you know, who did get bailed out in 2008 versus who didn't get bailed out in 2008, all of these other kinds of things. Katrina. Um, oh, right, right, exactly. Fucking Katrina, right. Um, all of that stuff, right. We could, we could, I mean, and for God's sake, every fucking thing about global warming, right, you know, could tell us. And yet at the same time, like, I don't know, I, it feels a little bit like if you were running for the presidency of the United States in this particular moment, you you would at least like produce a kind of like rhetorical turn that suggested that like, yeah, your appeals to the state are going to be met with something. But like, no, it's not just that they didn't do that, neither Trump nor Biden. They didn't need to do that. Right. Because the whole fucking process just runs itself. Right. So, yeah. But, I mean, to me, you know, what came into such stark, the question that came into such stark relief with this election is what is an election? Mm hmm. Like, is it a, like, manifestate, is it a, an index of the will of the people in terms of where they've been and where they want to go? Or is it a massive propaganda showpiece mm. to solidify and consolidate uh, the ideological support for one or both, not just one or both parties, but the system as a whole? Yeah. Yes, right. So it's a big pep rally. It doesn't really do anything. Not right. you know, no. It, it, it's it's just spec. It's pure spectacle. Like we're in full society of the spectacle here. Um, no, you know, no issues are really discussed. When they are, you're accused of being divisive. Um, they don't even the both. You know, it's it would be one thing if we had one president saying government isn't the solution to the problem government is the problem here we don't have either one of them saying I, taking either stance on that mm -hmm. because it's assumed that government isn't anything mm -hmm. government is just purely aesthetics government is purely like who do you want to see on television tomorrow are you sick of this man or do you want more of him um and the fact that we only have uh the choice between two people versus we have 500 television channels, right? Yeah. <laughs> is like, tells you everything you need to know about the status of spectacle in, in relation to politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, it's just, I, I agree. I mean, this definitely, it, this is not, of course, the first time that I've like had this thought in the course right. of my life or felt it, felt it, I guess, you know, I've, I've had the thought um, or felt it in like a kind of visceral way, but it feels like uh, it's very, it's just hard for me to have a different thought now other than like, this is um, uh, an extraordinary means of doing a certain kind of pacifying yes. work, you know? Yes. It's a, um, it's a catharsis. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a catharsis or it's just, or maybe like just a distraction or, you know, and not, and I, and not like a distraction from something really, right? Like it's not, it's like, it's not that intentional. It's just a way that people like, you know, it gives people like a moment of relief of feeling like they did, they did something, you know, but there's just like, there's even less and less thought that like you could ask the state to do anything for you, you know, like, um, you know, like a, a, um, a friend of mine, her book is about the state in the Victorian period. And it's all about the way in which the state becomes this kind of site of like fantasy attachment, you know, that you would appeal to and it would um, step in, right? Um, And so she like does these great readings of these moments in novels where people uh, appeal just like completely, uh, you know, actually in hopeless situations, like appeal to the state, you know, because it become, uh, and her claim is something like, you know, you have to have that kind of fantasy attachment. The fantasy attachment precedes like anything like, you know, the moment of the welfare state, right? The fantasy attachment is like there first. Um, it sets it up. Um, so it's this kind of like, uh, uh, it has a kind of Lauren Berlant account of what fantasy is or what fantasy does. Um, but it's like, that's not even, you can't even describe like people's obsession, you know, like this particular like liberal obsession with like voting, um, in those terms anymore, you know, it's not like they are appealing for something or that they think something is going to step in and do anything other than like, um, yeah, you know, I don't know, be less messy and grotesque than the last iteration of it. Yeah. 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 And that, yeah, something you can live. Yeah. It's like something you can live with easier. Yeah. Yeah. Catastrophe. A catastrophe you could like deal with easier than the other one. Like I was, I think the day after I went for a walk and I had this feeling in my like body, not even in my, not an idea in my mind, but a feeling in my body that like coronavirus was over. Yeah. It's like, no, (laughs) no, Biden just won. It doesn't, it, 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 the coronavirus is still going to be around for like ever basically. I mean, like there's news about a vaccine from Pfizer and yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, but also like there's another deadly pathogen like right around the corner. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's, there's a weird like marriage between like, Oh, the election happened. There's a huge relief. What I've been really nervous about for the last seven months has been a deadly pathogen. Those two things must be identical. We must have beaten both of the, both the bad orange man and the bad like microbe. (laughs) We didn't do either of those things. He's going to fucking run for president again. He will like die tweeting. (laughs) His followers will refuse to believe he's dead. They will think that he's been assassinated. 
Um, <laughs> like we just live in just such a bad, like I just wish I had been born, you know, when Nancy Pelosi was born because then I'd be <laughs> so close to death ago. and I would have had a great life. <laughs> you would have been born a surf. <laughs> <laughs> wow. She's old, man. That's what I'm saying. She old. Oh my God. We have a, oh, okay. Let's talk about the book. Yeah, let's talk about the book because this is so horrible. But actually this does transition us really well into the beginning of the section that we read uh, for today. Yeah. Um, which is, where did we start chapter 51? We're starting at 51, which is one of his history, the history of the future chapters. Uh, the 30s were zombie years, which is- Zombie a, years. Which is a great and terrifying, like if we're, if we're not already living through zombie years, then I don't know. I don't want to know what the 30s are going to be like. Um, civilization had killed, had been killed, but it kept walking the earth staggering towards some fate even worse than death. I think that's what we've just been describing pretty much, except way worse in 10 years when global grain outputs are going to be half of what they are now and blah, blah, blah. And like mm -hmm. things are just going to be bad, bad, bad. Um, and this is just like another, like a kind of harrowing beginning of the chapter comparing um, all the stuff that is going to be happening because of climate change to all the worst stuff in all of our memories and, uh, and history's memories, like the Holocaust, the Nakba, the partition of India, um, World War I, the Spanish flu, all of that great, great stuff um, that we try not to think about. And we're, Speaking, we're also yeah. getting, I mean, I feel like in the, la in the last episode, we talked a bit about that section on periodization, right? And like, yeah. you know, the sort of the impulse or the need to periodize as a way of like making sense, making sense of things. And, it, you know, here, I think, I mean, um, the date that we get as posited here as the sort of beginning date of the period that we're reading about is 2020. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I mean, which I, I think that like um i i <laughs> i can't remember i'm sure this was on a podcast because what else do i do other than listen to podcasts and then i can't do anything besides listen to podcasts <laughs> it's so i hate it i hate it okay but somebody... stop listening to podcasts everybody <laughs> and donate to our show by the way i need some money uh the um somebody was saying like I'm sure that for most of us, like 2020 has been the worst year of our lives. And I was thinking like, it's definitely not been the worst year of my, I mean, this is pretty fucking bad, but like personally, this has not been the worst year of my life. And then I had a good time think, spending the next like 45 minutes listing all of the years that were worse. And that was not, that was not the best uh, choice, but you know, like, um, you know, like one of the kinds of questions about like, where does change come from? how do you know when change is happening is also a question of, of like perceiving what's around you. Right. Um, yes. And the part of like why we like things like elections is because they periodize for us. Right. I mean, and they make things seem coherent and because they're like events, right. It's like a big event and it's a, you know, it's the big national event when you do democracy. Um, and like, you know, uh, and that, um, produces a kind of comforting sense of knowing uh, not only where you are, 
but knowing when the time has come when there is going to be a change and it's going to happen because of an event. And then, you know, like we talked about this in the Mars books, and I think this is really relevant here. The question about like revolution is also a question, you know, is a question not necessarily about identifying the event, right? Um, but rather having a different kind of understanding or thinking differently about like where sort of time and agency and change like come together, right? And that they might not come together in this like identifiable event or in like a cascade or a crisis, but in some kind of other way, right? It's just that we, you know, it's easier for us to tell these stories by enfolding them into like um, identifiable event-like things. But so you know, to think that like the setting of this book is in like the year's beginning in 2020 um, is obviously like an intense thing to be thinking about like right now. Um, but it also like enters us into part of the project of the book is I think making us think that like, you know, we might not be very good at identifying not only where change comes from, but when change is actually happening. And some of the reasons that we don't identify it, I think, are at least those of us who, you know, live in sort of like, you know, Europe or America is because we are so, you know, we're so centered on, um, we think that we're the center of the universe, you know, and thus change must emanate from here, right? This is where the arrow of history like flies from. Um, and here we're constantly seeing that it's actually all over the, it's actually happening all over the place in all of these different ways. Well, and that's a perfect sort of meta way to think about both like liberal democracy and America and like the category of the subject as well. Mm. Like you are mm. the center of the universe. And um, if you don't know it, it must not exist. And if there's something new out there, you've got to be convinced that it exists rather than just, you know, yeah. whatever, organically understand it or like accept someone else's word for it or just live literally in the moment. And I think that's like, something that's interesting about, I was thinking about that in sort of relation to elections and the sort of style of liberal democracy that leads up to these elections. And then once that happens, then you immediately start getting ready for the next one. Mm -hmm. And you basically consider the next four years to be a waste of time until the next election <laughs> yeah. comes. Yeah. And it's like, well, we didn't get it this time, so next time. And then now we'll just go about our daily lives and business and not worry about anything. It's like, what happens in between? Oh, don't worry about it. Just go back to work. Yeah. Um, until you until you can take the temperature, the political temperature again. Um, and yeah, what's interesting in this book is that it doesn't operate by those. Um, <laughs> we've got. We're both going to be dealing with cat issues. <laughs> this episode. Um, it doesn't deal with that kind of timeline <clears throat> because although, as you say, like there's great faith put in the rule of law here. And there is also like, like the, the notion of the practice of democracy uh, is take, you know, takes and like, uh, yeah, people like people autonomously deciding for themselves in collective groups, how to organize society. Although those things are prominent in the book, there's also all kinds of other forces at play here that are explicitly anti-democratic but that the book also posits will be necessarily a key part of um, saving the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, democratizing, yeah. And even democratizing and, the world. Yeah, yeah. So because, yeah. because we have to create the future out of the rubbish that we've got around us 
we can't invent something brand new out of nothing. Like we have to use what we've got to build the thing for, for tomorrow. And if what we have today is um, either fascism or liberal democracy or corporate feudalism, and we want democracy in the future, then we have to use those things to get to where, where we want to go. Right, right, right. And also, you know, and the, the other aspect of that is that same thought is like, you know, um, if, if in fact we take it that there, there is enough in the world, right? That is, right. there is enough intelligence and enough food and enough right. possibility and enough space, right? Um, but we're constantly being told that actually we're, things are scarce and we're in competition and people are stupid, you know, all of those all of those things that I think we are actually told all the time, then we don't see the world as the kind of abundance that can make enough, you know, can bring us to the place where enough is as good as a feast or whatever it may be. Instead, we see the world as like imperiled, scarce, the need to like build walls, whatever it might be. I mean, this, I was just thinking this chapter, chapter 51 does a really interesting thing because it, it takes up the question of periodizing, um, and then it gives us all of these, all of these like kind of labels and, and names all of these like, and names events, right? So we get the idea of the 30s as the zombie years that are then broken up um, by an event that uh, comes to be known as, but we don't even get that phrase. We're just told crash day, right? Um, crash day, which initiates the war for the earth. Right. Um, and the children of Kali become like the name that everybody like tosses around as the people who are making this happen. Um, but in fact, it seems to be the case that nobody really knows, right? And there might be multiple actors who have done all of these things or some of the things like the idea that they've, um, uh, uh, they've like injected uh, bovine spongiform encephalo encephalopathy into encephalopathy. like, into into cattle all over the world like we don't even know if that actually happened right or if that's just a scare tactic we do know that planes fall from the planes fall from the sky and we do know that there is like a surprisingly swift response to these tactics which is like people don't want to fucking get in planes anymore <laughs> and it people would stop eating uh beef i was gonna it say would work oh yeah i mean but but we also but but you know it's like um we we see also how the need to like like give the label to something or say like this is the period of this or this is the event on which all this begins like that can't possibly tell the whole story either and in some ways it just stands in it gives you a kind of like historical coherence um where things might actually be much less coherent than that and i think that we get that a little bit because the chapter after this takes us back to india and is another chapter where we see actually like um, you know, this extraordinary transformation um, in the direction of, you know, justice, equality, um, ecology, and communism. Um, and right at the end, whoever's telling us about this says, you know, I mean, it's not happening all over the world, but by the way, we did this for one-seventh of humanity, so maybe you all have less to worry about, right? Right, right. <laughs> right. It's, it's shocking how much how many people are in India and China and how if we could like, if, 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 if they, if they could solve their problems, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, obvious, you know, America is the big elephant in the room, uh, if you will, but like, um, 
the other the i mean uh, going along with what you're saying the impressive one of the impressive things about the chapter 52 is also how it's the things that it talks about them perfecting and learning and teaching themselves and developing obviously did not start in 2020 they started long before that yeah yeah um so the fully organic agriculture beginning in 2003 with Vandana shiva um and then kerala with a long history of kind of uh, communist inspired, more or less getting close to direct, direct democracy. Um, and um, what was also interesting to me though, in, in all of that was toward the end where, um, I mean, first of all, I, I, I don't know anything about the way, really that the way that Indian national governments, governance works, like how states work there compared mm. to, the way states work in the U.S. and um, states in the U.S. are just so fake uh, and just the product <laughs> of giant real estate schemes, <clears throat> so that you know they they probably do more harm than good. So I I would be really curious to find out how like politics actually works in India in that regard. But on two thirty three, uh, when they're when the the narrator is summing it up. Uh, the biggest democracy on earth has huge problems still and also huge potential for solutions. We need to learn our agriculture from Sikkim, governance from Kerala, IT from Bangalore, and so on and so forth. And that word learn, mm. especially in regards to agriculture, we need to learn our agriculture, just is so provocative to me because um, probably unintentionally, but it makes me think of like how much modernity has made us forget. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, how did we get here in the first place? Well, through agriculture. Um, so what do we have to, you know, like it, it I mean, it's not only made us forget mm. things, but it's presented new problems that we then have to solve. It's the Frankenstein problem, right? Like we created this thing and we don't know how it works. And it only cr- produces more questions than we have answers and opens up giant aporia in our like knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that again, like that kind of like liberal democracy politics, electoralism, the category of the subject, these, these categories where we think we know the world so well, um, open onto like necessarily huge crises of epistemology and just like, and just knowing that we then have no, you know, like we have to like reinvent the wheel constantly, it mm-hmm, feels like. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think this is also really, it, it gives us an, an interesting sort of take on a, a version of um, uh, like local autonomy, right? I mean, so this is on a much, you know, this is obviously on a much bigger scale than Mars um, or a much bigger scale than, you know, we get a chapter in this section on um, Mondragon in in, uh, Spain um, and the um, emergence of of the cooperatives there. and we're talking in this chapter about India uh, of something on, that's on a vastly bigger scale, but we do get this picture of like um, uh, the land matters. I mean, the narrator right. tells us different things happen in different states because the land is different. Um, we get a picture of like different kinds of local attachments, right? So that like, you know, Bangalore, um, the so-called Silicon Valley of, of India can be a place where a certain kind of work is going on that is different than the kind of work that's happening um, in uh, the states that are 
are doing uh, transformative agricultural work, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a kind of like, um, we get this kind of picture of a sort of local autonomy um, that does come together, it comes together in what, what we see in this book anyway, as a kind of, um, you know, historically produced self-conception that seems like it's really not precisely, it doesn't seem precisely right to call it a national conception. Right. Um, it, you know, it, it seems like more of a like historical cultural uh, sense of the importance of asserting a kind of like um, large scale identity, right? Um, maybe in a way that also might make us think a little bit about why in this section of the novel, we also get again brought up the question of like, um, we need to invent a new religion, another right. thing that crosses um, boundaries and allows people to feel their belonging together. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, it's a really interesting, it's an interesting picture here of like um, something that clearly in some ways is uh, like a nation state and in other ways actually seem, the emphasis seems to subtly be on something more like a federation of semi-autonomous communities, which I think, yeah. you know, yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, like the, and, and uh, I think Stan, you know, talked about this too mm -hmm. in uh, Years of Rice and Salt, where India is so crucial to the future because it is a genuinely syncretic country where mm. the states actually do have like historical like organic kind of political organizations to them and distinct cultures and like languages and religions and somehow they all have to see themselves as Indian whereas like America just is not like you may think that you that being from North Dakota is being is different from being from South Dakota but <laughs> it's really not I hate to break it to everybody. <laughs> um, and also like just where that, where that like political division in America comes from along state lines, which is not only a real estate scheme, but like the product of settler colonialism and like deeply like capitalist roots and, and also like, but, but, and yet also we predominantly share a, a single language. And although there's lots of different religions, it's all just the American religion of, manifest destiny so in that sense like it you know what america thinks of itself <clears throat> or likes to think of itself is much more close it seems like much closer to what india actually is mm, than what mm -hmm. america actually is and i was another thing i was thinking about in terms of comparing the two countries was when they're just when he's describing kerala as being on the southwest so it's got a southwest coast so it's got a lot of like interaction with africa and europe and i just thought of that in contrast to for instance like quote unquote flyover country in America where mm. just vast numbers of people live for like absolutely no reason. Like there's no reason, unless you're a farmer, I guess there's no reason to live in mm -hmm. like Kansas or something. <laughs> and there's also like no, not only that, but there's just no kind of um, interaction. You know, the point about Kerala being uh, a promising place is that it, it has uh, enormous amount of cultural and political and economic flows you have to go through that place to get to other places. Mm. Whereas now you can just fly over the, that vast red section mm. of the middle of the country. <laughs> um, and that's why they call it literally flyover country. It's just like they, <laughs> there's, there's no reason to be there because nobody's there. But maybe if people went there, there'd be more of a reason or something. I don't well, know. I mean, that's interesting. So this is making me think two, two things. I mean, one, we, uh, we won't talk about today because it's not in this part of the book, but like, that um thinking about that you know 
does make me think about the half earth stuff that we get yeah. to later on. Right. And, and um, you know, there, which is quite, you know, it's such a, this is a really interesting thing to think about just kind of, um, and I, I think it makes sense to, to just sort of have it in our heads going forward. Um, because if, you know, in some way, in some ways, right, like, um, like Robinson's books are, are so um, ex- extremely regionally specific, you know, even if the region is part of Mars, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, because like, you know, because he's a, a great landscape writer, um, because he's an ecological thinker, because that Leopoldian land ethic is like always, always there in his writing. Um, you know, and there's this real like, uh, I mean, you know, places are always so so vivid in his novels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, and it's interesting to think about that version of like localness, right? Attention to the land, to the to the differences, right? Um, alongside, like, um, you know, it can be easier to think about how that kind of localness goes with um, also imagining that, like, people develop you know, and can gather together and live in accord with the kinds of life ways that they want in particularized places, right? You know, like in a particular place in Spain through a set of like historical coincidences and events um, and through a set of regional and like, you know, um, also like locally determined possibilities, people come to live in a particular way, right? You know, uh, um, co-ops flourish, et cetera, et cetera, right? We, that's the picture that we kind of get of India. So it's interesting to think about that. And then also the kind of necessity of, um, you know, if if we want to have the possibility of like, um, you know, sa- saving, <laughs> saving uh, the planet and saving the planet for lives other than other than human ones, which presumably, um, you know, without doing that, we don't save the planet at all. Um, then we also have to think about certain kinds of mobility, right? And this novel right. is also thinking about mobility, right? The right. refugees, you know, we don't get the refugees painted as people who, I mean, in fact, we get a section about like, would you go back? You know, that kind of question. They're not necessarily people who um, miss where they came from at the level of like, I must go back to that specific place. You know, um, that's like not exactly what the dynamic is. Um, so these, anyway, this is, I'm, I'm rambling here, but this is the kind of like, um, this very interesting kind of movement in the book between like dynamism and mm-hmm. the necessity of um, human populations um, uh, condensing themselves in certain places and like regional specificity, right? right. The particularity of, the particularity of like place. Um, yeah. In a kind of non-sentimental way. Um, and then the other thing I was going to say, which do, we do get some of in this section, is this is also an interesting thing to think about in relation to um, the interest that the novel has in, in, like, the internet and social media, right? And needing right. to, like, transform social media, you know, like, which in some ways it seems like is this big, like, transcends borders, is all about flows or whatever, and is also, like, you know as fucked up um, as like, you know, nation states are 
um, and in some of the same kinds of ways too, right? It's controlled by corporations. It's yeah, it's pretty remarkable how much of our sort of um, brain wave brain path is taken up by social media, those of us who are on mm. it, because particularly in the context of the fact that like, what, less than a quarter of people are even on Twitter or whatever, like, uh, you know, like, it's just like, so dominates the conversation in so much of our lives that it's really easy to forget that like most people are not on it yeah. and that's a good thing and they should stay mm. fucking yeah. off of it. Yeah. Um, and I'm desperate to like, and I'm like, I have to, I have to like delete my Twitter account because it just brings me nothing but misery. And <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, yeah, like that whole part of, uh, yeah, that's an interesting comment about like flows and like the internet of things and the internet of the internet of the land. Like if we have to like, if, mm -hmm. if the internet is our like dominant metaphor that we have to think everything through, then we might as well, you know, that we have, then we must extend it to the land and to animals as well. Um, um, there's a good riddle about, uh, photons, the photons. Yeah. Which is very charming. I don't know. Like it's definitely also about flows and movement and mobility mm -hmm. and like heat, um, and, and, and that stuff. Um, and it's one of these unexpected, mm -hmm. you know, really unexpected moments in this book where I didn't know that you could do a first person, uh, chapter about a photon yeah it's really it's really great um i love that like um you know uh i feel like there's like an 18th century maybe an early 18th century like thing where people would write these like um the story of a farthing or something right. like that you know um <laughs> these like sort of personified like adventures of an object of some kind um and i think that the you know the this probably is true of other of the sort of like riddle chapters too. Um, but the photon one is so much about like the unknown, you know? Mm. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and that the and that for the photon, like the photon is also like, um, oh well, also there's dark matter, but you know, we photons don't know about that either. <laughs> no you one know? Knows. Uh so the kind of like um this it made me a little bit think of that great um that great chapter in uh, New York 2140 where um, that has the like, um, the kind of like the um, life, li life, life is going to get you, right? This like sort of um, really beautiful, like um, uh, um, account of like the extraordinary like productivity of life right mm. life's randomness life's oh yeah right you know what i'm talking about um this has this has a little bit of that same like you know here you are worrying about like when did this happen and is this an event and like you know politics or like you know central banks or whatever it is and then also there's the photon right right and there's just like this like crazy shit that is what makes up you know the not just the world but like the universe that we live in and like yeah, we don't yeah. see it or think about it or even totally understand all of it right right and it reminds me too i'm reminded of uh, i think we when uh we were like texting last week 
um, because I had this revel. I think when I was editing the last episode, I had this revelation that the eyewitness accounts and the riddles are all told in the first person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it gives this amazing way of conflating people with inanimate objects and giving voice to all of them. So that, and also, so like both, both you're like kind of like casting a photon as a character and having to kind of think through the world through the eyes of a photon. But then also, of course, it's, it's forcing you to, to um, recognize that the, the people giving the eyewitness accounts are also kind of riddles and giving you the opportunity or giving you the task to like think, to, to imagine into them as well, like unlock their kind of like, unlock both the subjectivity of a photon and unlock the subjectivity of uh, a yellow vest protester in France mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it's a nice little trick. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's like, a, I, I mean, I just, I really like the way that those, um, I like the way that this book just like kind of interrupts itself all the time, which yeah. which again, I just feel like it, do, it does this very, um, uh, like rapid isn't quite the right word because that suggests that it happens like on a even tempo or whatever, but it, you know, it's always doing these things that like, that produce like this very, like, you know, this snap of estrangement, you know, either cause you don't know who's talking or you're trying to figure out something, or you've just gotten really into like something that feels like the bigger narrative. And all of a sudden you're onto something else. And like, it does that estrangement thing of just like, the world is always bigger than you think that it yeah. is, right? And yeah. right, I just which I you know, which I feel like is a characteristic of of much science fiction, at least of good science fiction, but also definitely of stand science fiction. Like it's I, always like look over there. You didn't think to look over there. Look over there, right? <laughs> little magic trick. I think too. I, I found it difficult to focus on this this week. I think maybe that's part of the reason. Is just like it's a little bit too demanding on my on my brain space right now, considering like it's taken <laughs> up by all the f- complete bullshit that doesn't actually matter, which is the stuff that will determine the future of uh, humanity and oh, the fate God. of the biosphere. Mary, on 54, engages in discursive struggle again <laughs> uh, with some bankers. Um, and she runs into the problem of analogy collapse on 238 about um, the bankers as being like terrorists, but not really like terrorists because they're definitely not terrorists, but they sort of also kind of definitely are. Um, they're at least extortionists, but they're also extorting themselves, which is just a great way of really explaining what capitalism is all about. It's a pyramid scheme that you can, that can only, (laughs) that can only redound to your uh, suffering, even if you're at the top of the pyramid, (laughs) because once the pyramid collapses, you too will (laughs) fall down. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I like that part on 238 about the, the terrorists as, or bankers as, as terrorists basically. Yeah, and it's inter- we also get that interesting her reflecting there on um so uh um uh it's not just right it's not just corporation you can't just identify like corporations right petro corporations as the bad actors because it's also states right it's also petro states um that act um you know 
one might think in like essentially exactly the same kind of way. And it's interesting. It's it is a weird thing that I don't really have my head all the way around to think about. Um, you know, it seems like part of her tactic is to. I mean, I think that this is kind of. I think that this is kind of right, um, but I'm not sure about this. But part of her tactic is like she goes to the central banks. I mean, she probably goes to the central banks because of the idea that like to do these like, um, what do they end up calling the carbon currency? Carbon quantitative easing or carbon coin? The carbon coin, right. So, you know, she has this specific reason to be going to the bankers, um, but we don't see her, right? We don't see her going to governments, right? We don't see her going to heads of state at all. So the banks then represent a kind of end run around the states. So we get this, which in some ways like exposes like what are the state, what, what is a state, right? Well, a state is actually just like the prop, you know, the props for the central bank, right? You know, like that together, like together, and what do those things do together? They keep capital running, right? But so in some ways, her process is to like just, um, you know, put the political to one side, right? Go directly to the banks. um, And her play is playing off, you know, capital's own interest in being able to keep going, right? It's like the bankers, I mean, this maybe is not totally right, but this is like my, the way I'm putting it at this point in my thinking is like, it's like the bankers, um, because their commitment um, because their commitment is really to capital, right? Um, uh, in some ways, they they take on this, they have this sort of like global framework of necessity, right? Um, right. Because that is the master, the master they're serving is is global, right? And right. it requires, um, it requires itself as global, right? Like capital must be global, you know? Um, right. Uh, so that's the way in which, so she, she skirts around the political, right. To like, you know, get them at this kind of weak point they have, which is that like, um, you know, really what they're in service of is capital itself. And then the, you know, then I suppose the big question that we don't have to talk about now is like, does this actually produce any change in what capital is? Right. You know, I mean, or is the, or is this just, I mean, she thinks of herself as a reformist, you know, and she thinks of herself as like just doing doing what needs to be done to just like keep shit going. Although at the same time, she also tacitly approves of, and in fact, her work is made possible by, you know, um, Badim's like black ops, um, uh, you know, terrorist organization that we have no idea what it is that they actually do. Well, but this is also <clears throat> a canny uh, tactic of liberal democracy itself is to, um, prop up radical actors around the world uh, so that you get the population in line to do what the thing that you really want them to do in right, the first place. Right. right. Which, which um, yeah. So like, first off to pick up on the um, capitalism, like capitalism just there to prop up the state. I mean, going back a, a, a couple episodes, probably to that great rendering of when the bank of England is like founded based mm-hmm. on a loan from a bunch of rich guys to the King to prop up the state, um, that kind of sets in motion like the capitalist state um, and and capitalism itself on 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 Stan's account in the book, right? Um, 
Ellen Meeksons Wood might say something different. Uh, Marx might say something different. But like here, the account is the Bank of England is founded by a bunch of rich guys who prop up the King of England who owned, owed a bunch of money. And then that just started a kind of constant cycle where, of course, capital has to give a return. So it has to be constantly expanding, eventually expands to encompass the entire globe. And now we have a capitalist world, not just capitalist countries. Um, working together. And so her strategy, her primary, you know, uh, remit is to advocate for future people who haven't been born yet and future non-people who haven't been born yet, non-human persons, right? So is it easier to like destroy capitalism or is it easier to give capitalism a kind of a new place to do capitalism, which is, which happens to be the production of carbon and the production of new fiat currency, which is not actually fiat currency because it's carbon currency. Right, right. Like represented by a real thing. So like somehow like, and I think later, maybe it was earlier, he talks about like 1973 and going off the gold standard. Right. At a certain point, capitalism said, we're, we're going too fast to rely on this gold stuff. So let's just, let's float. We'll float the currency on each other's backs and because we have to expand. And then it started expanding so quickly and so massively and so destructively that it started eating itself and because it's eating the world. So then she's giving a kind of off-ramp to be like, you could like just do a new currency, but that currency would actually be based in something real that would be like the creation of carbon or the sequestering of carbon. Right. Um, so yes, in that regard, it doesn't destroy capitalism at all. No. It just creates a new market. And they even, like this is in like the later chapter where, where they finally come to the, where the, where the bankers undemocratically mm. go off and over a weekend create the carbon coin. Um, basically, they say um, that, you know, oh, you know, it'll be tied to a certain amount that'll be guaranteed over 100 years. And if there's too much of it made, well, then we can just adjust the rate at which we reward it anyway. Because again, it's all fake and all made up by people in a, by like mostly men in a room by themselves in Switzerland, right? Um, so that even though it's tied to something real, it can always, that, that relationship to the real thing can always be adjusted and rewritten. Um, uh, but at least it'll be tied to, to, something, to something real. I think even she makes a joke about like, <clears throat> hell, we can make a new ice age if we wanted to. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is, so, I mean, and of course, you know, capital is always tied to something real and that is um, labor labor right yeah. and and i mean and that's kind of like you know that's the the uh, labor of podcasting for sure is a, <laughs> is a real form of labor i i yes this is not productive labor because uh, we do not produce surplus value okay good um uh what about for anchor fm do we sur produce surplus value for them? well i guess we probably do produce surplus value yeah. for anchor fm so this is productive labor yeah I mean, a service can a service can be productive. Just obviously. not for us. Yeah. Oh no, it's not. It's not for us. We're we're in we're in the relation CMC. This is an example of potlatch. PMP podcast money podcast. <laughs> First you make the podcast, then you make the money, then you get the power. 
Uh, yeah. Well, let's. I mean, obviously, we're gonna have to keep. We'll have to keep talking about capitalism. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, so I. It's also interesting to me that so along with the um, along with the emergence of the idea of the carbon coin. Um, we get the idea of this kind of like people's bank, right? So creating like a counter, a counter bank and also the idea of like creating, and I'm not sure that I even completely understand what this is supposed to be like, but like a, um, uh, a free and democratic social media platform that can also be where you store and also sell your data that um, is not beholden to any corporation, but like runs off itself, you know, as a kind of like collective enterprise and takes the place of all other social media. It's just like Facebook and Twitter and all the other ones that I could name if I wanted to, but I don't want to because there's so many, (laughs) there's so many options out there for social media, but it's just not privately owned. It's owned by the actual people who upload their stupid comments and their photos of brunch um, and like share videos and news. And then, so it's owned by them. They get a dividend from it. They They get a dividend. They get a dividend if they sell their data, right? That's what the... I guess so, but also I feel like... I, get, I think they can sell their data for, for like ad revenue, basically, or like for the right to be advertised to. But I also think that there's some kind of... Supposed to be some kind of annuity or something, even if you don't sell it. But what? It, but I guess... I think, I, I think you get the annuity from data, from, from data. allowing your data yeah. to be mined. Um, um, which... It's kind of like, I mean, I, I, it's kind of hard to believe that nothing like this has already been tried or invented because uh, it does seem like a no-brain. Like, you know, people on social media create the thing that you go to social media for. So why wouldn't we, re- you know, reward ourselves? Obviously, there'd still be like some super posters who would get all the money and like me with my 438 followers would only get like 438 cents per year. But you know, that's a cup of coffee. I can deal with that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it is interesting that that, and then also because I mean, Facebook is like in places like India, which are going increasingly cashless, Facebook is the way people pay for shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, which is a dystopian reality when you consider it, um, as being privately controlled by Mark Zuckerberg, but it doesn't, obviously it doesn't have to be that way. It could be controlled by some kind of like collective pseudo-democratic thing of a co-op, a co-op of co, you know, the, the social media co-op. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, it wouldn't solve our problem of being miserable online, which is the real problem that I want to solve. No. And I, no, it would not. Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, this seems to be the, like, I mean, there are two options. Um, one is, like, we get rid of the internet, and the, <laughs> the other is we figure out how, how to make it into something that is a viable, like, is a viable sort of, like, commons in the ways that, like, you know, the early promoters of um, uh, networked, of a networked world claimed that uh, yeah. that's what we would get, right? Yeah, like the basically like Timothy Leary moving from LSD into like the internet, like he like he did. Yeah, Wait, yeah. <laughs> the seamless transition. But it's another it's another vision of like um, how are people brought together, right? Um, you know, and like like many of the things in this novel, I think um, 
were not so oh my god to to the Milton and Evie are engaged in a battle royale on the oh table. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Get him. <laughs> I can hear it. I can yeah, hear it's good. They love each other very much. Um they spend like two hours a day just like wrestling the heck out of each other. Oh. Um uh but like a lot of things in this novel, I think, you know, um uh, I think that the way to me anyway, like the way to think about this is like, how do we put ideas like, you know, what is this version of the internet? What would that do? Like, what would that change? What would that allow for? What would it make happen? You know, we have to put it alongside like, um, the chapter in this section about being, um, you know, part of a sort of like, um, a 20, a 20, 30 something uh, version of the Paris Commune, right? You know, actually occupying all of Paris. Right. Um, you know, which, um, you know, and how do we kind of like measure? I mean, I keep thinking back to the end of that, um, the end of one of the chapters early on, which is like uh, one of the ones that's about uh, economics that it, at the end is like, yeah, but at some point you have to like go outside and see other people. And there's something in the being with others that is simply not reducible to uh, that. There is no calculation for, right. And that kind of, you know, which is also, uh, I think very much what thinking about like occupations, which we get a bunch of here. Wow. Whoa. It's, it's a wild time, wild time in the Strang house. My goodness. Cats, cats, the cats just are going everywhere. No freak, solidarity with freaking them, the yeah. fuck out. Um, it's it's their joy. This is how cats express joy. Uh, um, but you know, like so so um, having to think about like like the guy who tells us about like occupying Paris is like it was beautiful. And there's this great line where he says it was very hard. It was hard to live without habits, right? Which right. is such, I, I just think like a really beautiful like evocation of like part of what we might think about like the about the commune, right? Or about communism, right? Like, you know, um, you know, as we try to think of like what that form of, what the experience of that form of freedom or self-determination might be, like part of that might be thinking about like the like, you know, radical newness of each, day right? right you know um in which you in which you do the things that come up for you to do rather than the things that are like set for you to do um but that so i think that that stuff um in here which i think is like um you know the the various ways in which we get these scenes of people being together like you know in the refugee camp the enforced being together right um in the occupation right or the autonomous zone or wherever whatever it may be um a different kind of experience of being together and part of what seems to matter is like you know beginning to create these possibilities, these possibilities of having the experience of being with other people in a different way, on different terms, not on the terms that are given, not in the sort of social roles um, um, that were given, but in some very different kind of way, right? And like that for me, those ideas in here go along with the idea of this like, you know, reformed or revised version of um, 
of the internet and of social media. Not that those things are the same, but that mm-hmm. like part of what we're getting to do is like try to think about those things at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it seems like the, yeah, what, what the, 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 the kind of the Paris chapter has that kind of expanding the, the horizon of possibility aspect, but also mm. then being limited by your own subjectivity, your own personhood, your own sense of yourself. So that he, there's the point where he is holding the, the paving stone. He's getting ready to throw it at a cop and he just can't bring himself to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, similar to like Frank about to assassinate like Rex Tillerson or whoever that was. And then just <laughs> not being able to, <laughs> not being able to pull the trigger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and then coming to the kind of, at the conclusion of that chapter of chapter 55, uh, the narrator says, you know, um, he relates kind of a bunch of people's kind of reactions to like he, after the, after the commune inevitably gets um, squelched, they go back to kind of doing their advocacy on the side of the road, wearing the yellow vest, flagging people down, having conversations. Um, uh, one person says it's all about how we treat the land. Another person says, I don't own my kid's teacher. I don't own my doctor. I don't need to own my house. I just want to pay the collective for it, not some landlord. He says, so maybe someday the solidarity will overcome the splitting. I hope so. During the occupation, I didn't want reform. I wanted something entirely new. Now I'm thinking if we just get the fundamentals working, it would be good, a start to something better. I don't like to think of this as giving up. It's just being realistic. We have to live. We have to give this place to the kids with the animals still alive and a chance to make a living. That's not so much to ask. So there's this kind of like expanding the horizon of possibility, wanting a revolution. Well, wanting a revolution, then realizing that all you've done is expand the right horizon of possibility and that you'll settle for reform in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad, but it's also, as he says, realistic. Um, it, 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 it's mm-hmm. hard to imagine the kind of tr- like utopian break because also it's, I mean, so much like the, the, the full-on break, the full-on revolution, like, okay, now we're all anarchists. Like that would probably be pretty bad like if that had to happen like permanently, if we couldn't sort of run back, run home or something. Um, And also the fact that like, we haven't actually seen anything like that happen successfully since 1917. If, you know, maybe 1917 to 1919, whatever Mm -hmm. it was. So uh, it just makes me like, it's just a lot going on there at the end of like, you know, rooting on for the revolution and then knowing there's going to be an inevitable reaction and then what happens when you just have to settle for reform and then what happens when reform doesn't happen and i don't know a lot of this stuff it was funny too because um just of my like paranoid podcasts that i listen to at this point i'm kind of like does stan like work for the cia (laughs) and then i was like do i work for the cia (laughs) If I did, would I know? Would you even know? Uh, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this chapter that, um, uh, I mean, I, first of all, I, you know, it is an individual, it is an individual story, right? right. Um, and it's a story about a person who has to process their experience in some kind of way. But it also really connects to me, like, so, um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like, you know, I'm not so much there for the like, well, we have to be realistic about things, but there's a question about like, how do you, because I, you know, I mean, whatever, you know what I think about that, but like, but there's a question about like, what do you do in conditions of urgency, like in conditions in which time is extremely limited. Right. Um, because time is very limited yeah. right now, right? Right. Um, you know, not just in ministry for the future, but in, um, you know, here in the unministered to present, like time is like, you know, this is urgent. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about this chapter is like those questions, those questions that people ask um, and his sense of like, look, you know, we got to make something happen. We have to make conditions livable. We have to find a way to allow um, children, the children who are going to come and other living creatures to live, right? That that's the sort of condition of urgency. And last time we were talking, you know, we were, we were being um, critical of the sort of rhetoric of like, you do it for the children or whatever it is, you know, or, or the, and the very idea that, um, you know, one simply extends from one's love for and desire to protect one's own children, one can then, you know, that there's some way in which that then can extend outward. And I think the kind of case that we were making in that conversation was that, in fact, the way that the family form works under capital is to do precisely the opposite of that, right? To create the separation so that, like, your desires for your children are quite precisely not your desires for, like, humans at large. And so, but in this chapter, right, it seems to me that maybe like whatever that thought is that he, he's having at the end, he could not have without the experience of communal life in the middle, right? Right, and that, right. that experience of communal life, right, is in fact transformative. It's not just like something that right. happened and then we got realistic and we like pulled our pants up and like decided we needed to like live by the rule of law. I think it's more like without having the possibility of... um these kinds of like, you know, of, of um, shared experience and shared concern and, and also of shared making of a different world, right? Making of a different way of life and living of that way of life. Without that, like, how do you begin to extend your imagination out to others in the way that's necessary or to respond to urgency, right? And that, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like that, that's the way that like, I'm sort of, I, I read that chapter and a lot of the things that are happening here, which are about how like, it's not actually just easy or automatic and there's not some sentimental or, or even like practical slogan that can be given that will make us all like have these feelings, but also like the feelings really, really matter. Like the feelings do matter. Like that's what I think the Badim saying, maybe we need a new religion, you know, like, because it turns out the feelings matter, like, and they matter not only in that sort of structure of feeling way in which they orient us to our present, um, but they also matter um, because they're part of how we can be attuned to or, or apprehend the possibility of difference or, or newness. And without being able to apprehend that, then we really are fucking stuck in this situation that we're in, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's also what's so depressing about this week is that it just doesn't feel yeah. like new at all it just feels like we've put in all this not even effort just anxiety we've been worrying so much about stuff and then i mean most a lot of people put in a lot of effort and the inertia of history just like smashed all that possibility for newness um yeah right at the end of that chapter 
like the really, really end, he, he says, you know, um, those seven months made me and I'll never forget it, never be the same. I only hope to live long enough to see it happen again. Then I'll be happy. And then part of what happens in 56 is Mary and Badim have this conversation about happiness. Um, and happiness is overrated. Is anybody ever really happy? Oh, I think so. It looks that it looks like it anyway. And they like <laughs> gesture out to other people who are happy. Yeah. Were the Zurchers happy? Zurker, Zurk, Zurkers? <laughs> the Zurchers. The Zurchers. Uh, were they happy? And then um, uh, people who have it all who don't want anything, they're lost. If you want something and your work gets you closer to it, that's the only happiness. The pursuit, yes, the pursuit of happiness is the happiness. Then we should be happy. Yes, she said unhappily, but only if we get somewhere. <laughs> if you're pursuing something and you're stuck, really stuck, then that's not a pursuit anymore. That's just being stuck. Um, and then that's when he like, uh, where she asks him sort of like, what are the terrorist things that you've been doing? He's like, I'm not going to tell you the terrorist <laughs> things you've been doing, but I didn't, I didn't smash the planes out of the sky. And then he says, I think we need a new religion. And then he says, maybe not a new one, maybe the oldest one. And then it's very cryptic about that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that part. And that, and then that also takes us back to that chapter, that early chapter about like um, how economists have tried to quantify happiness. Right. Right. Um, you know, um, economists and, and uh, right. Utilitarians from Bentham on down. Right. Yeah, uh, right. trying to find find a find a way to be able to um, you know, uh, yeah, um, and and then and and I, again, like I think that it's not it's not that we're getting like you know this is not although um, I, I think that there are some like uh, yeah yeah I mean there there are things that we might want to think about the relationship between this novel and like certain kinds of nineteenth century novels like we're not getting a like Dickensian like opposition between, you know, this is not like a sentimental thought. It's not like, mm -hmm. Oh, we need it. We need imagination and pure, the pure feelings of a child as opposed to like, you know, utilitarian calculus or whatever it is. Like we're getting something that's actually like very complicated and like takes like the presence of like calculation in our lives, like quite seriously. And I don't think that that, that, that idea that like, you know, we need a religion or something like it, or that the experience of being with other people, um, uh, that those things are like, um, I don't think that that is at all a kind of like, um, uh, like sentimental gesture. You know, I, I actually think it's a very substantive, like sort of claim toward like, um, uh, yeah, like, you know, the, uh, the the need to be able to have experiences of our common humanness, right? Like not of the spectacle, not of the separation, um, but mm. of like uh, what there is shared among us, yeah. right? And that explain that also helps to explain the outburst of celebration and dancing in the street at Biden's election. Just like any yeah. excuse, any excuse to be together and like dance on top of a car, just like in a Pepsi commercial. Uh, <laughs> You know, the place where we know what happiness truly looks like yes, exactly. is in Pepsi commercials. Exactly. Um, uh, and, but, um, yeah, speaking of happiness, the next chapter is 
very happy, but then like extremely sad because it's where the glaciologist is oh, living God. his best life. Oh, oh He's having, so happy being on the glacier. It's like, I don't care why we go. Like we just, you just want to be there. It's the best place. You just, no matter what dumb billionaire gives you the money to go for whatever stupid project the dumb billionaire wants you to do, that's why you go. And then you go there and you're there and it's awesome and you're with your friends and you're doing your science and it's great. And then you just fall into a crevasse for no reason and you die. And uh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And his That was so abrupt. It was one of the most abrupt deaths. Um, And also the guy's name is Peter Griffin. So does this mean that uh, Stan is a closet family guy? I mean, the, the crazy part about that chapter is that, you know, we get like a, this classic like break, you know, and then you learn that you're just reading his notes and his notes broke off. And that, but then you're left with like his, like um, his colleagues and his colleagues mourning over them. And that I. His former students. His former students. I liked that part because of the, um, you know, that's that sense that like, um, uh, of the importance or the significance of like attachments in all kinds of relations, you know, not just in familial relations, but also in like collegial relations or, you know, like, um, and they're like devastated, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. And they all take it like somewhat differently. Like some, like most people are really upset. And then one guy is just pissed off yeah. <laughs> because, you know, Jeff, the guy, Jeff is pissed. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, that was a great, yeah, it's just a very sad chapter. Um, I think also in this, in this section of the book, chapter 59, um, I feel like I said this to you the other week, or maybe we texted it, but I, I feel, I feel like finally your desires are answered and we get, um, we get a chapter about Hollywood. <laughs> this is Finally, so wonderful. The, finally, the culture industry appears, and it appears only to be drowned. <laughs> this was so. I mean, I can only imagine too how cathartic it must have been for him to write this as a like Southern Californian who feels very power, very strongly about that place and, and yeah. what was what has been what capital has done to it, um, and uh, it. it it's you know the the perspective of a um aspiring actress uh living in a shed on top of a garage (laughs) just like the horror like the way like talk about ideology right like the way that we can convince ourselves that you know what we're pursuing the happiness we're pursuing actually exists and is attainable. Yeah. That yeah. I'm going to move to California. I'm going to become a famous actress. But in order to do that, first, what I need to do is uh, put up with a guy trying to like scam me, like trying to like get in my pants so that I can rent a shed, a shed. Yep. on top of his garage in Sierra Madre near Pasadena. Like, which would have been a beautiful place to live like 400 years ago or even like 80 years ago. But now would just, it's just, you can't imagine what an ugly place 
Southern California is if you've never been there. Um, and then, uh, and then, yes, like the catharsis, the kind of just amazing feeling it must be to destroy this place and just wipe it off the face, like godlike, right? Like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like <laughs> Noah's flood, just start brand new. Um, the L.A. Basin, where is that? You know, like a cheesy disaster film, but for real. Like this but wasn't a, this wasn't fake. This was real. Um, uh, the flood was uh, nor was the flood like some do it right now or die emergency where you get an hour of total danger followed by relief that became clear as it went on still not like a movie at all which was impressing me more and more here I was helping people all of us wet and scared and my right bicep just screaming and I kept thinking this is real this feels good why again are you trying to be a fucking actress <laughs> that's on 278 and then 279 so great um what was occurring to me over and over again as all this was happening was, hey, I hate LA. I was born here and I know it well and have even read or been told some of its history in school and I really do hate it. The truth is after World War II, this place went from a sleepy little spread of villages to the 10 million people here now. During that time, the developers were getting rich, making mm. ticky tacky suburban neighborhoods, that and putting in the freeways which cut the plane into a hundred giant squares and all of it crap. No plan, nothing good, no parks, no organization, no plan of any kind. Just buy some orange grove and subdivide it and tear out the trees and build a bunch of plywood houses, then do it again over and over. It happened in a snap of the fingers and it was never anything but stupid. And that's what we've been living in ever since. And more than a few of us try to live out a remake of the movie La La Land. It was double stupid. So as we were paddling around in our kayaks, people were saying to each other, this whole fucking place is gone. Everything is going to have to be torn out the entire city of los angeles is going to have to be replaced which was great maybe we could do it right this time and i myself am going to find a different job i mean that's just extremely satisfying for me to read frankly. yeah it's it's great and i you know it is one of the very few chapters in this book that does the kind of um uh uh, like the Stan like adventure mode where a person has to like you know do something rather physically extraordinary and usually ends up like having to work with a lot of other people to like try to keep people safe um, and it, it is just like uh, hilariously right you know like because it's about the destruction of an entire like you know huge uh, metro area it is also like one of the more like light, lighthearted chapters, yeah. right? And and you know it is this kind of invocation of like what is what does she get? Well, she gets to be, you know, she gets to be free of like her tie to the dream factory, and she gets to be free of that like commitment she had that let her live in a horrible situation that she knew was horrible, but she felt like she had to in order to like get what she wants. I mean, it makes the world new for her. Um, right. And that is this kind of like, um, you know, like it's a wry, it's definitely a like ironized uh, utopian moment, but it is a utopian moment, right? And it, and it occurs, and this is also, I think, there aren't that many, um, I mean, I guess next time we'll get to talking about the Alps, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, up to this point in the book, there have been... Um, relatively few of the kind of scenes of physical endurance um, and like thinking about like 
uh, you know, floating and um, being climbing and walking and those kinds of expenditures of energy and experiences of embodiment that are like really important in Stan's novels. Um, but this one has a real, like there's a real like kind of verve and charm to this, like a little like gift to the reader. Although at the yeah. same time, of course, you have to think about like, what is it that I'm wishing for now? That is so, what, that's what's so weird and ironic about it is like, yeah, it's so exciting and so much fun. And it's like the entire LA basin is under 10 to 15 feet of water. And the rivers are like exposing themselves, like the long paved over rivers yeah yeah it's amazing i love that um, they make up he makes a point of saying only a few thousand people died which is fine i guess um they're probably the bad ones right um <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah it is such a weird chapter because it is this just enormous yeah it's this cleansing rain yeah. it's a devastating flood but also it's you know really exciting and uh, you know oddly oddly utopian yeah i mean the, yeah. in the next chapter they make a point more of a point of saying only a few thousand people died it was the destruction of the dream factory and a lot of most people didn't seem to care because they yeah. all everyone <laughs> around the world hated los angeles and all those stupid <laughs> images that came out of it and that was very satisfying to me too to read that i as a film scholar is uh it's it's a tough pill to swallow but it's also true like yeah yeah man, just crap yeah this this we can say, despite how many times have we talked um, on and off uh, this podcast about missing going to see shitty movies. You know, there are people go to the movies for lots of different reasons. <laughs> um, and there are some good movies that get made improbably. Improbably. Right? Improbably, it's the, yes. It's the same. What is it? In uh, the Mondragon chapter, you know... Um, they talk about the co-op, the co-op structure, um, open admission, democratic organization, the sovereignty of labor, the instrumental and subordinate nature of capital, participatory management, payment solidarity, intercooperation, social transformation, universality, and education. If that characterized the movies that got made by the culture <laughs> industry, we'd probably have much better movies. True. But that's just me. The <laughs> Well, should we uh, should we wrap it up there? We, yeah, we should. You want to start with the six, chapter sixty next time? Yeah, we can a start lot. With, that's yeah. a pretty long one, and a lot goes on in yeah, it. Yeah, so agreed. Agreed. We'll start with sixty next time. We've already gone for a little over, well, quite a while, probably. I don't. I wouldn't set a timer. Um, cool. So we'll start with sixty, and we'll go. We'll go up to like. Maybe 75. I think that was our kind of plan. That's a big chunk. Yeah, we'll yeah. try. We'll do the best we can. Okay. Um, great talking to you. Great talking at you. Great. Uh, great, listeners. great listeners. Thank you, great listeners. Uh, email us. Tweet us. Uh, tell, your, tell all your friends. Tell your friends. Uh, buy the book. Yeah, next time I'm looking forward to talking about the kind of democracy slash anti-democracy that gets... Maybe it's anti-anti-democracy that happens. <laughs> um, yeah. That gets that, 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 that where things start to happen here. And um, cool. Yeah. Oh, hey, the book I was referencing that my friend wrote about the state uh, is called The Dream Life of Citizens. And her name oh. is Zarina Aslami. Okay. Um, 
I'm you know, and you, you should buy that book. Anyone who's listening to this, because uh... <laughs> why? She's not going to make any money from it. No, she's not. No, she's not. Download it illegally for free. It would. It would make her happy if people read it, though. Honestly, maybe I'll, I like the title. I might read it. It's um, a cool. Bo- it's a cool book. What else are you reading right now, Hillary? Uh, I am read. I am reading uh, Aaron Beninov's new uh, oh. book, the book on automation, which is called "Automation in the Future of Work." Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, which is uh, he wrote two interconnected articles in the New Left Review a couple of years ago, um, and the book, the seed of this book, is those two articles. But then uh, uh, it's expanded and. The last couple of chapters of it are about science fiction and utopia. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, I think it's a really, um, uh, it's like a really interesting and clear and smart um, take on kind of automation discourse. Um, uh, um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. And I, yeah, I'm reading a couple of other things at the same, at the same time also. Cool. I'm reading... I'm reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and I'm reading um, the Einstein intersection, the Delaney, Sam Delaney book. Is it called oh, Einstein? Yeah. yeah. Intersection or intercession or something. Something. It's fucking weird, man. That guy is a weirdo. Total weirdo. It's, it takes a lot out of me to understand what the hell is going on in that, in, in his writing. But uh, I, I, it's definitely rewarding because it is, it's fucking out there. Uh, yeah, he's, I mean, he's amazing. He's so, yeah. so amazing. But yeah, his books are, are always, I mean, some of the early ones can, are like a little bit more, like the very first ones are like a little more pulpy and you can kind yeah. of like, you know, but almost always there's, at, at the very least, they're so trippy that you feel slightly tired. Reading them. Well, the, yeah, I definitely feel tired reading them and I'm trying to read them before bed and it's really difficult. But yeah, this one is definitely a pulp novel, but also it has epigram, epigraphs from Saad and from all kinds of different like literary sources. And then also his own notes as he's writing the book itself in Venice. Yeah. Which is like mind blowing. Is yeah. like, really crazy yeah yeah oh oh yeah yeah some someday we should do a one-off episode where we talk about delaney that would be fun great okay really fun look forward to that everybody uh talk to you later bye thank you for listening bye okay thank you bye